Welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast with Ruth Haley Barton. In this season of the podcast, Ruth invites leaders with diverse callings and expertise to dialogue and explore how spiritual transformation intersects with some of the most significant topics of our time. Well, friends, it's exciting to be um, with Robert Creech, a friend, a new friend who's written a book called Family Systems and Congregational Life, a map for ministry. Robert is a new friend of mine uh, that's um, come to me through his book and the great kinship I feel with people who think about family systems theory as it relates to life in congregations. That's been an emphasis in the Transforming Center forever and ever. And I feel like uh, Robert has become a kindred spirit colleague in discussing these things together. In our last episode with him, we were able to define family systems theory and then move into looking at the key concepts. We were able to move through the first three of those concepts. And so here in this episode, Robert's going to finish up uh, describing the key concepts for us. And then we definitely want to get to talking about the implications of family systems theory for our life in congregations. In the Transforming Center, we talk about the fact that the best thing each one of us brings to leadership is our own transforming self. And the reason that's true is because of family systems, um, the way systems function. If any person in the system changes, the whole system has to change in response and reaction to the changes in that person, which means that when we as leaders transform, uh, that's the best possible way to see our congregations begin their own transforming work. So, Robert, it's really exciting to be back with you in this second part of our conversation. Good to be back. And when we concluded our last episode, I drew our attention to Paul's words in Ephesians 4, that we must grow up in every way into him who is our head. And Paul also talks about the fact that when I became an adult, I put away childish things, and that this conversation about family systems theory is very much about growing up. It's about putting away those child childish behaviors and patterns that we participated in almost unconsciously um, within our families of origin, allowing those things to become conscious so that we can make real choices about how we are going to participate in the systems that we're in. And that that is a really important part of our formation, our Christian formation. It's a really important part of actually growing up. And that one of the characteristics of adulthood is that we take responsibility for ourselves, that we are able to differentiate a self, define a self, while at the same time staying connected within the systems that we're a part of. So I am really excited, Robert, for you to go on and continue to describe the key concepts in family systems theory, if you would. Sure. Uh, we had talked about the first one, which was emotional triangles, and the second one, which was the scale of differentiation of self or emotional maturity, and the third one was those automatic family emotional processes that operate um, when anxiety rises. And those are the first three concepts. The fourth one, Bowen called multi-generational transmission process. That's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. But he basically recognized that uh, because families are emotional systems, uh, they pass on from one generation to the next, not just genetic material, but they pass on emotional uh, material. That is, we come out of a family that operated as an emotional system, and every person in that came out of such families and on back. And so the, the fact is that we learn from our families many things uh, about the world that affect our our level of anxiety. For example, families teach us uh, about um, attitudes, about money, about sex, about death, about uh, birth, about 
um, relationships, about work, about, I mean, it goes on and on. There are just so many things we inherit. And one of the things that uh, families teach us is the degree to which the world is a dangerous place. I mean, we, if we grow up in a very fearful, fear-oriented family, we see the world as a dangerous place. We're likely to be more reactive, more fearful. Uh, if we've kind of learned the world is basically a safe place, then we're going to come out with a little more confidence. And uh, there are just a lot of things like that that have been transmitted through the generations. And so Bowen recommended people uh, get a working knowledge of four to seven generations of their family with themselves being generation one and then working backwards uh, and learning not just the names of those people, you know, family tree information, but uh, what he called a family diagram, which looks at how this family has functioned, how have, you know, where have they come from, who immigrated, what was their religious beliefs. I mean, anything you could know about this family story is helpful in understanding the the person you're becoming and the family you've come out of. But that was the multi-generational transmission process is what we called it. And I just want to say that I found this concept to be one of the most freeing ones in a way, because rather than blaming any individual, including oneself, mm. you actually step back and you realize this is part and parcel of something that's more objective than that. And when you map Absolutely. it out, and you see that it has been, it's patterns that have been passed down. I think it actually helps us not to be so shaming and blaming of yeah, anyone I, in the system. There are people who think that working on your family means trying to fix your family or go back and find somebody in the family to blame. Yes. And the reality is, this if this family weren't as strong as it is, I wouldn't be here. These are survivors, you know. Yeah. I'm the product of a family that has survived over the generations. And uh, much of our strength comes out of this and so knowing those stories uh, from generations back is a, a really powerful thing, as well as seeing, you know, the, the struggles that families have gone through over generations and knowing that, yeah, there's some stuff in there in every family that is uh, not beautiful in some sense, but it is a part of the, it is a part of the story. And, uh, right. And when something's hard and difficult within the system, rather than blaming we can actually say oh well, what what is what is it about how we do this together that's creating this situation um rather than it coming down to blaming one individual or another and i just think it's a very it's a very gracious and a much more objective way to look at some of the things we go through in our families yeah and you can find you know patterns of behavior in a fa in your family mm -hmm. and uh see that those have been sort of passed on from one generation mm -hmm. to another. And then you've got to, if you know that as a fact about your family, you're in a place to say, I want to see to it that that doesn't happen in this generation. Exactly. And also to say, I don't want to participate in the system the way that I have been participating. <clears throat> right. You know, I want to change something about myself and the way that I've continued to participate in something that's not fruitful for us all. Yeah. And, and the work that goes into learning about your family is in my sense a kind of spiritual discipline. I, mean, I can put it, be put in that category of um, I'm wanting to become a more mature follower of Jesus Christ and, and do relationships that reflect more the love that He's commanded us to to exhibit. And if work on my family can help me change in that yes. way, then it is a spiritual practice. And so the research that's done in that, the conversations you're forced to have with family members to gather this information, uh, is itself a formative kind of practice. Yes. Thank you for putting it in the category of a practice. So wonderful. What's next? Uh, the fifth one is called family projection process. And it's related to the idea of emotional uh, 
triangles. <clears throat> but Bowen, you know, sort of raised the question, why is it that two children coming out of the same family with the same genetic material in the same environment, one seems to do quite well in, the, in life and one struggles in life? What's, what's that? And he, he looked at it this way, that sometimes uh, a, a, a parents will... I'm going to use the word select, but it's not a conscious selection. Mm-hmm. Yes. We'll select a child to direct a worried focus toward. Uh, it may be because of what's going on in the family at the time of the child's birth. And, uh, a significant family member may have died. Uh, uh, it may be a difficult pregnancy or difficult delivery or a child born with some sort of birth defect. There are a lot of things that could trigger this kind of worried focus on this child. But the more that parents worry over a child and then the child from infancy begins to react and respond to that Um, the child becomes more dependent on those parents and then they worry more over the child and over time uh, what can happen is uh, the child comes out of that family with a lower level of emotional maturity a a greater degree of dependence in their relationships uh, than their parents had. So if on the scale of differentiation, arbitrarily, say the parents were 35, the child might come out as, you know, 34 or 31, or, but a lower level of uh, emotional maturity when he or she goes out into the world. Uh, what has happened, because that's a triangle, the, the anxiety that really belonged to the marriage is being focused mm-hmm. on the child, and the marriage seems to be doing okay. But uh, if the parents could have found a way to engage each other and their anxiety more fully, the child might have uh, escaped that kind of worried focus. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, that child's siblings, because they are not receiving that, uh, are sometimes come out of that family with a, a little higher level of emotional maturity than their parents. So over time, Bowen said, that working out over generations, uh, you end up with some branches of the family that are really low functioning and some branches of the family that tend to do quite well in the world. Um, in wow. congregational life, you know, we can play that out. I think, you know, I don't, we choose when things are anxious, we may choose to worry over the youth ministry or the, the choir or, you know, uh, to get, have a worried focus on one part of the church's life. Uh, that we just all agree that that's the problem, and we're going to we're going to focus on mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Right. Uh, the sixth uh, concept in, out of the eight uh, is the one Bowen bo- borrowed entirely from a writer named Walter Toman. Uh, Toman wrote a book called Family Constellation, and he was observing that um, the the unique thing about any one of us in our family is our sibling position. There's only one eldest brother and only one eldest daughter or youngest brother. Uh, And he identified um, a handful, I don't know, I used to know the number 12 or 13, various sibling positions that are possible. So you Mm -hmm. can be the oldest brother of sisters or the youngest brother of sisters and such as that. And he said, well, we learn uh, from our sibling position a couple of things. One is how to relate to those of the same or opposite gender. And also we learn uh, about power, uh, how to get our way. Everybody figures out how to do it. The eldest um, get their way by being there first and being the biggest. And so they may exercise some degree of authority or 
uh, strength and they to get their way with their siblings. Uh, younger siblings can't pull that off, but they can be cute and manipulative. Mm-hmm. And so we learn ways funny. of behavior. It's funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, often a little less responsible. And yep. uh, now Bowen said, uh, all things being equal, and really all things are never equal, but all <laughs> things being equal, running on automatic, sibling position can greatly affect the way we relate to others in the world. And so knowing about our own sibling position and that of those we work with uh, can help us understand knowing the sibling position of our spouses uh, can help us mm-hmm. understand things in marriage. And uh, so he borrowed that from Toman and he thought it was a pretty significant idea. Yes. And that was one of the surprises for me in studying family systems theory was that sibling position can even be more shaping than the quality of one's relationship with one's parents. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and I, you know, I had never in, in any other way of looking at things, I'd never heard anyone put that kind of importance and significance on sibling positions, but I'm a grandmother now and I can actually see it as I watch my grandchildren grow up mm. a lot, a lot easier than I could see it in myself or in my own children. Yeah. And I believe it. I think sibling position really does shape a person in one way or the other. Yeah, uh, Roberta Gilbert has a book called Extraordinary Relationships, and I think she has an appendix in that book where she describes those uh, sibling positions and the things that are sort of characteristic yes. of each one of them, and that's an easy way to get at mm-hmm. uh, that that concept. Yeah, thank you. Um, so just two more. One is uh, he called emotional cutoff, which is an extreme form of distancing, and as Bowen used it, it was <clears throat> something that occurs between generations that... Um, the anxiety is so intense in a family that the uh, a child cuts off from their parents. Now, they may do that geographically by moving halfway across the country and not having any more contact, or they may live in the basement and be emotionally cut off. Mm-hmm. But the relationship just becomes <clears throat> practically non-existent uh, because the, the, the anxiety was too high for them to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, you can maintain uh, authentic relationships at great geographical distances that just geography doesn't equate to cut off. That could be one way of pulling it off. Uh, But um, when you begin to study your own family and you're looking at your family diagram, one of the signals that there may be cut off at work in our families is when there are branches of the family that we don't know anything about. We just have no facts about. Mm-hmm. And you wonder, why is that? Why don't I know my mother's uncles and aunts' names? Well, it's probably because there's been some cutoff operative in that uh, part of the family. Um, and it, it gets passed on. Uh, the, the, capa- the ability to do without a, a relationship that by all, you know, all normal assumption should be a significant relationship to be able to, to walk away from a relationship is often i think due to cutoff at work in our brains at work in our mm-hmm. uh, family and so to be able to find it in our family and then to work at bridging it is um, a significant practice as well yeah. to try to can i get to know these people um, but that's the seventh concept. Yeah. Well, and I'll just make one. There's so much to be said about emotional cutoff. So many questions I'd love to carry us into, but I won't. But one of the things that I've noticed in families where there is emotional cutoff is that then eventually it becomes normalized. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't consider it to be normal 
or healthy, but it becomes normalized yeah. so that it, and that's one of the reasons why it can be passed on is yeah. that it became the normal state of the family's life to be cut off from a part of it. Yeah, uh, it very much can. I'd be interested in knowing how, uh, how that works in congregations too. Uh, mm-hmm. If, uh, yeah, well, we could go yeah. off in different directions of that. Yep. The, the eighth concept, uh, Bowen didn't develop until the 1970s. Uh, uh, and he was asked uh, to present a paper to the Environmental Protection Agency about uh, crisis in society. And this sort of gelled for him his last concept, which was emotional process in society. And he observed that um, human society operates just like families do, with the same emotional processes, cut off and conflict and distance and all that sort of thing. And that societies go through uh, regressions like families do. There are times when the the anxiety is so high and the reactivity is so intense that society regresses in a way. There's a lot less responsible behavior, a lot more distancing, a lot more conflict, a lot. And he believed that we were in the 19, latter part of the 20th century in North America or, you know, Western culture, that we were in the midst of a serious regression that he did not believe we would pull out of until the middle of the 21st century. Mm. And uh, I think and he had no internet to work with and any of those kind of things to do his research. But uh, he, I think he was spot on about, about that. He, um, he was interested in the source of that anxiety. And he explored things like the Vietnam War and the sexual revolution and some of those things in the 60s. But he concluded those were symptoms uh, but he, what he thought was the um, source of the anxiety that was driving the regression was a, a break um, a, between human beings and nature. Hmm. And that uh, our, our cut off from the created world that was increasing uh, was driving human anxiety. That We were made to be a part of that world. And now the way we were destroying it and you know, overriding it in so many ways <clears throat> was driving the anxiety that is behind the current regression. Uh, and he concluded, I just, he said that when this finally, when we finally pull out of it, that we will be a different kind of human being with a different relationship to nature. Uh, all of that is very, you know, very prophetic. <laughs> given yes. Given where, where we, we are right now, where we are right now yes. with climate change and yes. with the politics mm-hmm. and the, the, you know, the division in our, yes. in our culture. Mm-hmm. So that the was lack the of civility. I mean, you know, oh, like we yeah. just lost our ability to be even civil with each other oh, I know. across just, lines of disagreement. Exactly. And the thought, thoughtfulness goes out the window. Ed Friedman yeah. described this regression and, and said that uh, regressive families and regressive societies are leaderless. Uh, we can't produce leaders. Uh, thoughtful leaders. We want somebody to come give us a quick fix and take care of things. And if they don't do it, we'll elect somebody else. Mm-hmm. But we don't, we are not in a environment that produces principled leaders. Right. And uh, it takes that to pull out of it. And so um, you may well, be. And, and I think we are also at a place among Christians in a way that's disturbing to me. And that is that the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. So if somebody promises to fix our economics and they can behave any way they want to in any other aspect of their life, and we will accept that as Christians, right. um, <laughs> there's no principle. That's not a principled stance no, at we all. Have, yeah. So we, we may be in for a ride if Bowen was mm-hmm. right. But uh, near the end of his life, he began to talk about a ninth concept, mm-hmm. which he called the supernatural. Yes. Uh, and as a scientist, he didn't mean 
whether the supernatural exists or not is uh, actually, as a scientist, there is no supernatural. There's only the natural. But the fact, the functional fact that people believe in, in the supernatural, he began to wonder, how does that affect our functioning and our level of differentiation? And so he thought that was a thing that could be studied, whether you're studying, you know, Wiccan practices and witchcraft, or you're talking about Christian faith and practices. But just the question, uh, how does one's belief in the supernatural affect the functioning of a system, its ability to manage anxiety and to function well. Mm-hmm. Those yes. are the concepts. He left that one for other people to work on. But he never well, I, I feel, you know, I, I was always very excited when I stumbled across anything that was said about the possible ninth concept because I felt like it sort of left the way open for some of us to participate and grapple with what that means because some of us who are trying to make connections between you know, living systems theory and spiritual formation and the spiritual life. I feel like we're in that, in that ninth concept sometimes. How do we open up to the more, however you define it? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I I always found it so exciting that that there was something that was left kind of open-ended for the rest of us to, you know, kind of work with, you know, I'm excited about that. Yeah. And um, it sort of pushes us to think about, uh, we can talk about things that scientists can't talk about the, uh, as scientists. And um, so it gives us some freedom to do some exploring of that. And that's been a, I was one of the earliest questions for me is how differentiation itself is, a, is related to spiritual formation. Right. Well, and how it turns some, some concepts about discipleship and spiritual formation on its ear because differentiation, depending on how you've been raised, perhaps spirituality is defined by just being willing to lay your down, lay down your life in any moment for anyone. Differentiation is very different than that. And Mm -hmm. so it's really challenging to some of the ways that we've been raised to think about our spirituality. Yeah. I think there's a lot of confusion of terms when you lay Christian theology and practice alongside of a scientific theory. And we, we make some false equivalencies about terminology and, uh, one of the, you know the, one of the ones I run into all the time. People say, "Well, you're talking about working on yourself." Uh, didn't Jesus say to deny ourselves? Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, well, first place, there's no word for self in the Greek language that, or a concept for it. Um, there was the word soul, uh, which Eugene Peterson said is you know that's a good term. But he yeah. said self is a modern um, term that is mm-hmm. the soul minus God. Yeah. And uh, so, but Jesus never said. <laughs> I mean, there's no word for self. So when he right. said deny yourself, it's just a reflexive verb. And I think what he was calling us to is deny these automatic responses, this mm-hmm. automatic, simple kind of thing, and align your life with um, discipleship and following him, which is a way of defining oneself. So right. I do not Well, or Bob Mulholland, who's a New Testament theologian that's impacted my thinking quite a bit, he would say that the self-referenced way of being the the way of being that is oriented towards self rather than oriented towards God um, yeah. and being responsive to God. I think that I find that to be a very helpful way. That, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Of distinguishing self from soul, which I would define as as our essential self, as we have been created by God and as we are being redeemed in Christ. You know, right. um, and that there is a good that God has created each of us to be. Um, and somehow finding our way to that is part of the spiritual journey, you know, or also, you know, Bob defines the soul as the Bob Mulholland, um, the soul is the place where God is present to us. 
mm-hmm. which is so profound to me, you know, because that is, that is a part of our Christian affirmation that God is present to us deeply within um, God's spirit witnesses with our spirits about the fact that we are children of God. And from that place, we address God as Abba father, that, mm. um, that the soul is a very, um, very different than just the, the, the self small yes. S or life, <laughs> small L. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I appreciate you bringing out those distinctions. Well, um, we need to talk about the implications of family systems theory or human systems theory as it relates to our life in congregations. Um, what, what would you say are, uh, you know, one or two of the most meaningful aspects of connection between our work with family systems theory and what happens in our congregation and how our, our, our work as leaders mm-hmm. in these arenas, um, actually helps us to become transforming leaders that just by our very presence begins to, to change the settings in which we are leading. Yeah. <clears throat> one way of thinking about that for me <clears throat> is to think about sort of what the goal is. Uh, what can I, what do I want to be able to uh, give to my congregation as a pastor or as a leader? And uh, what systems theory helps me think about is giving the gift of being a calm presence. Mm-hmm. Um, Friedman used the term non-anxious presence, but uh, I, I push back a little bit against that because I don't think there are any non-anxious people uh, that, except in maybe in cemeteries, because anxiety is this reaction that we automatically have to our environment. So we're always experiencing some reactivity and anxiety. But if we can be less anxious and present, uh, calm and present, then we can make a difference, I think, in our families and in our congregations. Um, I have a uh, kind of, for me, a kind of a funny story. It's like, I'm um, uh, my hearing is not very good, never has been. And especially with high pitched noises, I just, when they came out with watches that beeped, I could never hear them beep. I, I can't hear the blinker on my car. Uh, they just don't exist for me. Mm-hmm. So I was preaching one Sunday morning in our congregation in the 11 o'clock service and was preaching from the text of Mark 4 about Jesus and the disciples crossing the sea and the storm and his rebuke of them about why were you so afraid? You know, where was your faith? And I was preaching about that. And in the middle of my sermon, the fire alarm went off mm. in the building and I could not hear it, did not hear it. <laughs> and I just started noticing the congregation fidgeting around and looking at each other and looking at me and, uh, you know, and I uh, didn't know why they were doing that. And I just kept preaching, why are you so afraid? And they finally just calmed down. I mean, they would have, had there actually been a fire, they would have been consumed because mm. I was calm in the presence <laughs> of this threat. <clears throat> Finally, someone came in and got him up on the platform and said, you know, uh, Rob, we, we're, the fire alarm's going off. We're going to have to evacuate the building. So, okay, we'll do that. But it was so, you know, so funny to think about is how people look to their leader to know if, yeah, what the state of things is. And if y- you are a calm presence, they calm down. Yes. And even though my calmness had nothing to do with my differentiation, it had only to do with my deafness, it uh, nevertheless calmed the, the congregation in that moment. And I thought that's, you know, that's a good illustration, but I wish it had been for other reasons. Well, it reminds me of um, the role of the flight attendant on yes. a flight. Mm-hmm. I'm a nervous flyer. I don't, I don't like to fly. And so if there's turbulence, I know what I will do. I will look at the, the face of the flight attendant. And if they are calm, then I will say all is well. All must be well because the flight attendant's face is calm. Um, if I see anything other than calm and confidence in the flight attendant's face, then I get nervous. So I think it's yeah. that very same kind of thing, yeah. how we trip each other. 
we take our cues. We take our cues from the person in charge, and yes, uh, yes. and so the ability to legitimately, authentically bring to you know business meetings and decisions and counseling sessions and in the pulpit a, a calmer presence that's authentic um, is a gift to the congregation because it allows them to be less anxious to think uh, to be open to God and. Uh, in ways that are, if we bring an anxious presence into it. And you think about the society emotional process and the condition of our society. People come to church so anxious on a given day. Mm-hmm. Fear is just being generated by, no matter whether you're watching CNN or Fox, it's just the generation of fear is constant. And people come to church with that anxiety, as we do. And if they leave more anxious than they came in, something's amiss. I mean, there's... yeah. Uh, so I think that is one of the reasons that this is a practical thing to bring. It's also just, I mean, it gives me, I use the metaphor of a map. If the territory is human relationships and theory is a map to help me think about that. And so I don't have to be an expert at everything. Um, I can sit with a, you know, people who have come in to talk to their pastor about some issue in their life or their marriage or their kids or uh, their job. And it gives me a way to think about that. I can sit in a staff meeting or a business meeting or a committee meeting, and it gives me a way to think about that. Uh, it's just a useful way to help me learn to navigate the territory. Yeah. And I think it gives us the ability, as we said before, to take more responsibility for myself exactly, and my presence in the situation, to know, mm-hmm. what, to know what my reactivity is, to feel my own anxiety, to have more options for what to do with myself as I experience my anxiety rather than putting it on other people to help me not, you know, to help me deal right. with myself. It know? takes away that helplessness or yes. the victim idea that uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Those deacons or those elders. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, we began our conversations in, in part one uh, by reading, I read a quote from your early in your book where you said the pastor's survival may depend more on the ability to understand emotional systems than on skilled exegesis or preaching. So that's about the pastor's survival. But let me ask you this. Would you say that congregation survival also in some ways um, depends upon our ability to understand emotional systems? What does the congregation you know, get out of this, the, the pastor's journey of transformation through doing their work with family <coughs> systems? What, what, what's in it that's for the congregation, would you say? Yeah, well... Um, there's uh, the way systems thinking works is to say, and there's a wonderful quotation from Murray Bowen. I don't know if I could locate it quick enough to read it to you, but he basically says that if any key leader in an emotional system, uh, I'm paraphrasing, can uh, begin to observe emotional process and understand his or her own part in it and not retaliate when you know, uh, lashed out against and mm-hmm. stay connected to the key members of that. He lists these series of things that sound real easy and are difficult as I'll get out to pull off. Uh, but he says, if we can do that, a key member of the system can stay connected and stay calm and not be reactive. The whole system will change in a series of predictable steps. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about, uh, if you can imagine a mobile uh, with all of its parts hanging there, it's in a state of homostasis. It has reached its balance uh, with the, given the weight and position of each piece in it. But if you grabbed one piece of that mobile and pulled it, say, six inches down and held it there, all of the rest of the mobile would have to adjust to this new position. 
that mm-hmm. this piece is taken. Now, the whole weight of the system is such that if you let go of that new position, it's all going to go right back to where it was. Mm-hmm. But if you think about that, I, as a member of a system, especially as a leader in a system, if I make those key changes in my life over time, other people are going to make changes in theirs. And they may not be con- they may not know the least thing about family systems, but my changes are going to there require changes on the part of those I'm most closely related to. And if you're a leader, you, you know, your influence extends a lot further into the system. So I, I think the goal is a more mature leader will eventually produce a more mature congregation in some way or another. A calmer yes. leader will produce a calmer, a more thoughtful leader will produce a more thoughtful congregation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what they get out of it, even if they don't know what's going on. Yes. And it, it occurs to me that that kind of a leader creates a safer environment with when, mm-hmm. within which other people can now explore their own journey mm-hmm. of participating more healthily in the systems that they're a part of. They can try out new behaviors in a place that's safe um, and bring that back even into their family systems once they've experienced yes. a healthier congregational and, system. Right. And, and um, one of the things that Friedman says is quite helpful to me is that uh, clergy are part of three emotional systems. There's the family, the clergy's own family, the family of the congregation, and mm-hmm. the families, plural, of the congregation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that those interlock. And so changes in one, for positive or negative, impact and produce changes in the other. And so as we go to work on ourselves, we're going to be having impact in ways that we don't even know. Yes, yeah. Well, we began our conversation by highlighting Paul's teachings that that we are, as Christians, being instructed, inspired to grow up into, into Christ, who is our head, and to grow up in every way, including how we participate in systems. And that part of that is to be able to observe those childish behaviors that came out of our family system that are not fruitful for the, the way we want to live our lives now, and that this is part of becoming a real adult, um, and that um, sometimes we want to spiritualize and overly spiritualize our spiritual transformation when really there's there's this kind of work that needs to be done that is very much a part of our transformation in Christ. And I just want to close our time together by saying that there is some psychological work that goes along very well with our process of spiritual transformation and that we ought not to overly spiritualize the transformational journey, but that this kind of work, which is very practical, highly relational within our families and within our systems, it's, you know, psychological in nature in that we are actually, you know, repatterning ourselves to live more fruitfully with others, that this is part and parcel of our transformational journey. Um, and that as leaders, as we take responsibility for this aspect of our journey, it's not just for ourselves. It's not just useless navel gazing. It's not separate from our life in leadership, but it's actually mm-hmm. part and parcel of transforming leadership. And it is for the good of many. Um, that when we work at this level, we are doing it not just for ourselves, but for the good of many who will benefit from the presence that we bring. Absolutely. So, Robert, thank you. And could you offer us a practice? What would you encourage us in in terms of a real practice that we can engage in as we um, close this particular episode? Yeah, I, I think the the practices that are involved in learning about our own family that we come out of. So a practice like you know, setting a goal of being an important member of your family. Show up at um, 
anniversaries and weddings mm. and funerals and those kind of key family gatherings, show up there, be present there, engage individuals in your family, get to know them um, as persons. Mostly we know our family members in a very shallow way. Mm-hmm. Um, but to know, it doesn't mean they need to be our best friends or even that we necessarily like them, but we know them and they know us. And so yeah. I think a practice of showing up and being an important member of your family or resource to your family would be uh, a practice that could be formative for us. Mm-hmm. And you'd probably say that as we do that, to go back to the other practice, we observe ourselves. <laughs> we do. And, uh, we, and we observe uh, which family members uh, you know, cause our anxiety to rise. Yes, and, yes. Uh, and, and then we can ask ourselves, what are my choices about <clears throat> um, you know, how am I going to choose to behave? So Yeah. And um, perhaps even at that moment, as we notice our anxiety, to actually invite God into that space invite God into the anxiety, maybe with a welcoming prayer or something like that, that doesn't seek to reject the experience, but to invite God in and to invite the Holy Spirit's work within us as we're noticing these places of anxiety. Um, also gives us a way to pray with these things that we're noticing um, as we go. So um, I feel like I would like to just offer a prayer for all of us as we continue this particular journey, because it is a ch- it's a challenging journey. It's not easy. This is a courageous journey, if you will. It is. To see this as part of our formation. So, Robert, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your work and the way that you've articulated these things in your writings. And God bless you in this new release that just came out this week. And may God use it for good in the lives of many. Let's take a moment to be quiet um, in God's presence. And maybe as we're quiet, to say yes to God's invitation, to pay attention and to observe and to notice how we interact within our families and how we might want to grow up, how God is inviting us to grow up and asking for the Holy Spirit's presence and help. God, we thank you that you have placed us in families. This was your choice uh, to place us in intimate groups of people that love us and that we love them. Uh, where we experience great benefits, but also some of our deepest pains. We realize that many of us perhaps have even gotten into ministry in some attempt to fix something that happened in our past or to outrun something that still hurts from our past. We ask that now we might drive a new stake in the ground and be willing to pay attention to those experiences, to pay attention to the patterns, to pay attention to the way we participate in the patterns, to, to see a transformative way ahead, new ways that we can be responsible for ourselves and that you would empower us to make the changes that are ours to make and to take responsibility for ourselves as adults. We pray that you would help us to grow up in every way into you, you who are our head. Help us to put away childish things and to become adults. Thank you for Robert's ministry and his willingness to be in this conversation with us today. Lord, bless us all. Amen. Amen. On behalf of Ruth and the entire Transforming Center staff, thank you so much for listening. We're currently accepting applications for our next Transforming Community Spiritual Formation Experience for Christian Leaders. You can learn more by visiting transformingcenter.org TC. This podcast is a ministry of the Transforming Center 
and is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. If you've enjoyed Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can also become a partner of the podcast and get exclusive benefits by visiting transformingcenter.org slash patron. Thanks so much for your support and for listening to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. Your